everyone and welcome to the 53rd <laughs> installment of Digital Foundry Direct Weekly. It is indeed our weekly show where we talk about the latest gaming and technology news. And a packed show today talking about Grand Theft Auto 5, Elden Ring's new patch, FSR 2.0, a big bunch of great stuff. Uh, and joining me to discuss it, first of all, Alex Batalia. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff on this list of news items this week that I'm really excited about. Uh, some things I've been wishing for for a long time on the AMD front, so let's get to it. And uh, of course, John Linneman. I'm just happy to be here with you guys. This is this is the best the best time of the week. We get to hang out and talk about random video game stuff and technology. But are you excited about the AMD stuff? That is the question. Well, yes, because FSR 1.0 was really bad. I, I just had to say it. <laughs> And FSR 2.0 looks really good. Really good. So, you know, that's okay. criticism. It's important. It leads to better things for everyone. Who would have thought, John? Okay. Well, let's move on to our first topic, which is not related to AMD. Well, it is kind of tangentially. Okay. So, Grand Theft Auto V, uh, when we're filming this direct, has actually dropped this week. Yeah, GTA Funf. <laughs> the best of them all. Not really. Where did that come from, John? This uh, sudden blast of Teutonic. I, I saw <laughs> excitement. Well, I put two and two together and, like, okay, Alex is making a video. Alex is on my screen up there. You know, German. <laughs> it just, like, it just, it, it just, just, it just, it struck yeah. me. I, I felt like, like I, I needed to do that. <laughs> well, we're going to be talking about GTA 5, but I'm suddenly thinking that GTA 6 should be set in Berlin. I would Ooh. love that. Um, yeah. It's pretty rare to see games set in Berlin. That's why I always love the Hitman level in the club there. Um, I'm covering GTA V. I'm doing the um, the John Linneman style premiere video, just talking about the upgrades that the game has over the previous gen console version on PlayStation 4. I'm using PlayStation 5 primarily in its like high performance ray tracing mode there. And I'm also comparing it, uh, comparing it uh, against the PC version maxed out on like a super rig. Uh, and I'm talking about basically what upgrades you're getting there. And after having played through it, and the video will be out definitely by the time that the, I think the patrons watch this, as well as people in the audience. I think the general gist of it is if you'd played on last gen console, like Xbox One, PS4, and even Xbox One X and PlayStation 4 Pro, which didn't ever see any upgrades to this game, uh, you're getting a really great experience over that, what you've seen before. It's 60 FPS. The visual upgrades are definitely substantial. I think the game also, in general, just uh, it plays much better now due to that 60 FPS. And we can talk a bit about the gameplay <laughs> at some point. Um, uh, and, uh, so that's a really good upgrade for you in the audience. There are some things that are not upgraded, though, that I really wish would have been. And if you look over at the comparison to the PC there, I think it is actually a better thing than what you can get on PC at the moment, even on like PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X. It's just that they did Sorry, which upgrade is better? Uh, I think the PlayStation 5 version actually is better than the PC version. Um, right, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because this is in stark contrast to the uh, screenshots you've been sending over the Slack yeah, this week. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> the, like, the screenshots make it don't... Like, there's some aspects that I think they really should have upgraded, but the average experience is much better than what you get on PC. Uh, for example, I don't find the image quality on PC, in spite of being higher res, very good uh, that often. There's a lot of aspects of flicker and shimmer and all these things uh, that the PS5 version uh, doesn't even have. Uh, then you have... Uh, aspects of playability. 
like I think the menu and the loading and all of these things on PC just feel really clunky. And on like PlayStation 5, it's surprisingly okay. It's not it's not lightning fast as we've seen in something like Ratchet and Clank or Marvel's Avengers or something like that, where it's like um, but it, it's a lot better. And it I think it just kind of going back to GTA 5, which I didn't play at the time of release because I just don't really like these games. I think uh, if you're coming back to it, you're going to have a good time. I'm just a little bit curious about what people think of actually the gameplay nowadays because going and playing this game, my goodness, it does so many things to make you not enjoy it uh, really quickly. Well, absolutely, because uh, I should say before we started this direct, you said that uh, it was not a good gameplay experience in any way, which, which, which made me laugh. I mean, in any way. I mean, this is like the great, the biggest selling game of of, of of all time, I believe, yeah, at this point, possibly. Yeah, if, it, I, <laughs> if I were to just guess at what I was trying to... In, you know, say with that statement, not good in any way. It's the moment-to-moment gameplay, like moving your character around the screen, aiming your weapons, um, driving the cars. Like, I know people praise the game's driving, but it just felt really standard to me. Nothing particularly interesting there. Um, And it's just so weighty and uh, so slow. And, like, sometimes you'll, like, push your character forward and they'll, like, like turn all the way around just to turn like normally in a game your character kind of turns on a dime very rather rather quickly here there's an entire animation set of them like going like looping yeah it's like animation priority is the order of the day here oh and my goodness that makes it so frustrating uh to play i think and also to make a df video where you have to line up shots and the characters like juggling and dancing around and i ended up doing a lot of my comparison shots in first person because that has the least amount of weirdness going on i think the first person mode in this game is actually really good there's a lot of cool first person camera effects that were added because this this was this was not something in the original release by the way that was added for xbox one and ps4 and pc so and i always thought that was a cool feature yeah, it's uh, it's definitely surprisingly well done. Like they just attach a camera to the third-person character model, and you can tell that by the way it animates. Uh, and that's usually how I prefer first-person games to be. But at the same time, there's the fir- that still you're still limited to the way the third-person character moves. So sometimes he does things that you really don't expect with the way shoulder turns work. Usually in a game when you turn in first person, it goes like this, just pans aside. But in this game. He moves his head, and then you can see his shoulder, and then he turns. And it really disorientates, uh, uh, I think, uh, in a lot of motion ways. Sickness. So I, emotion sickness. If you if you have motion sickness, GTA <laughs> is pretty brutal. Um, but I think, just to round things off, I think this is a really good uh, package that they brought out there. I think it's really cool that they've managed 60 FPS with ray tracing at a surprisingly high resolution on console. And I think the ray trace shadows... Um, for being an open world game are better in a lot of ways than things that we saw in like Far Cry. Uh, They look pretty good here. Um, So a good package. I just wish um, that it came out on PC in a timely manner as well too. So I could do this comparison in a more interesting way. I mean, the rate facing is just sun shadows, right? Yeah, it's just, it's just sun shadows, but you know they have a surprising effect on the game because if you played on PlayStation 4, the shadows were 
not very good. And um, if you play it on PC, you could sure pump them up, but they still suffer from all these shadow mapping artifacts all over the place. The game's mostly outdoors, really, right? It is. Like, there's so few aspects of the game that are indoors, so it's not a big deal. Yeah, so in terms of content, uh, it should all be out by the time this video goes public. So yeah, we're planning to do... Uh, obviously, we've got Alex's content, um, uh, and then we've got Tom on platform comparisons, PlayStation 5, Series X, and then following that, after this video, will be X versus S. So in terms of production schedules, uh, we didn't really get early access to this game. Well, we did by like, uh, I don't know, 24 hours, less than that if you live in New Zealand. <laughs> um, yeah, so we had some issues there in terms of um, access to the game. Uh, we got the game at the last second, basically. So yeah, it's going to sort of roll out. Um, it should, as I said, most of the content should be out now, fingers crossed, and uh, Series S stuff to follow. But yeah, I'm kind of um, uh, happy to see this. I think they needed to do this just to continue the GTA Online juggernauts to keep it modern for the new consoles. It's probably the main reason why this happened. But, you know, it's good to see that the story mode also got the upgrade as well. That wasn't left behind. But really, the focus is on GTA 6, the Berlin discotheque. Actually, Alex, uh, it you bring up Hitman 3, and uh, <laughs> their focus in Berlin was indeed on a Berlin discotheque. Yeah, it, was, uh, <laughs> it didn't make any sense. Like, it's on the outskirts of Berlin in some sort of forest area that... Berlin forests don't look like that, by the way. Um, but, like, it's also, like... Like, I've never heard of, like, anything other than illegal raves being outside the city. So I have no idea what that was supposed to be. But it looked really cool. That episode, uh, that level's really beautiful. Fair enough. <laughs> okay, uh, well, let's move on to the next news topic. So Elden Ring, we've made lots of videos about mm -hmm. it. Doubtless we'll be making many more, uh, oh, but no. we are we are going to be reining them back because uh, actually I think you made a pretty good point on Twitter, which is to say, Alex, that uh, if we keep doing Elden Ring patch videos, then actually new games are not going to get covered. Yeah, which is, I and, feel bad for other people. And fundamentally, we kind of seem to be chasing this sort of botched launch on PC um, and yeah they've really got to get their act together and maybe they have because uh, Elden Ring patch 1.03 has appeared um, can't speak to the PC uh, experience at the moment and uh, it's, it's tricky isn't it Alex because with patch 1.02.3 we had effectively identical PCs producing radically different experiences. Yes. I don't know what that's about, Rich. I don't know. Uh, which, uh, which is, uh, you know, it, it's just kind of wacky. And um, we're seeing some indications that uh, performance has improved on PC. Some stuff from CapFameX uh, suggesting that frame times are better. But fundamentally, what I wanted to look at with this patch was a console performance. Because that has been kind of um, uh, controversial to say the least. And more than that, we don't have to rely on the idiosyncrasies of individual pieces of PC hardware to actually figure out what's going on there. And I do have some interesting news here, which is that uh, for Xbox owners specifically, uh, series owners, the game has improved. Now, I'm not going to say it's a night and day improvement because it isn't, 
but it is interesting nonetheless to take a look at this comparison data. So uh, Tom fashioned me with some 1.02 clips. I updated those uh, with 1.03 uh, comparisons. And it seems to me that on Xbox, uh, the overworld, um, the, the, the big open world seems to have improved by about uh, 8% in terms of performance. Mm. Not, you know, I don't think you're, well, I don't know. We have actually had some reports on Twitter of people saying that they're feeling the difference, but, you know, we get that with, <laughs> with content that hasn't changed whatsoever. I, <laughs> yeah, quite, I can definitely, quite a lot of placebo. I, I, I think I'm the only one here that's actually playing through this game right now. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm much further in the game where the Xbox performance got much, much worse than what we've tested. And okay. I did test this patch, and it definitely did seem to slightly boost the lows. Uh, because yeah. you could tell, because there's a point, basically, when it drops under 40 frames per second, you get what looks like low frame rate compensation, which meant that yeah. if you were at 60 hertz output, that didn't work, and it would get quite juddery. Um, and there's a bit less of that going on. But I will say it's not, like you said, it's not a night and day difference, but it does help reduce those serious dips that you get in some of those later areas to make it a little mm -hmm. more pleasant. But it's still the same situation where you really need VRR to help smooth it out because yeah. otherwise it's just it's the same juddery mess that it's been since launch. I mean, that's the thing, right? I mean, when you move out of your VRR window, things get a bit gnarly. So any kind of increase to performance, I mean, even if it is like uh, 7% or whatever, actually, you know, in some areas, it, you know, when, if you look at the actual in the moment comparisons, you're looking at an extra five frames per second, which is significant. But, you know, in VRR, anything that keeps you within, comfortably within the VRR window is a good thing. A lot of the TVs like the CX now can go down to 20 hertz, I think. Uh, right. But... Um... I feel like as long as, you, if you go under 45, you really start to notice it hard. Oh, I think it's pretty obvious. So yeah. um, it does, it's better, but you definitely really feel it. So by this slight boost can at least keep you closer to 45 to 50 range, I'm finding, yeah. based on mm -hmm. rough tests. So it, it does make it slightly more pleasant. Yeah, so we ran a whole bunch of comparisons here. I mean, literally everyone I could think of. And um, if we look at PlayStation 5, uh, weirdly enough, um, the introductory cutscene after you've uh, been defeated by the first boss um, does actually run a bit faster on all systems, uh, like 5%, including PlayStation 5. But in gameplay, in the open world, I didn't see any noticeable differences on PlayStation 5. But it's very much noticeable, well, certainly noticeable based on our performance graphing here that it is improved on Xbox, which I find quite interesting. But yeah, I mean, console-wise, I suspect... It's not going to be a, a game changer to most people, but it's certainly welcome on the Xbox side if you're uh, in VRR land. Also, I think uh, Xbox Series S also gets um, a boost as well. And bearing in mind that performance is generally depressed still further on the junior Xbox, then um, this is the uh, this is this is again a welcome thing. So yeah, interesting stuff there. Um, there was a big bunch of stuff added to the patch. John, uh, since you're playing the game, it looks like they've um, restored uh, content that was previously hinted at in the network. I don't know. Do you know anything about this? I haven't delved too deeply into that yet, but there's definitely some stuff they added there. And also, I mean, there's actually like full quest lines that weren't even available in the original review build that were added 
on day one. So it seems like it really did come in hot and they've been just adding in features and stuff since launch, including like markers now for where the different NPCs are on the map. Uh, which is nice because, you know, uh, I love the, the non-guided nature of this game, but knowing where the, knowing which NPC is where is something that becomes important the further you get because you start to like, okay, who has this item or where, where do I need to go? You know, it's, it's good to be able to find that, <laughs> you know what I mean? Rather than going to each, uh, point of grace or bonfire and then checking out like which NPC has what, you know, this, this makes it a little bit easier, I think, to, to remember that stuff. But I don't know. It's, it's, it's still an amazing game, but yeah, it's, uh, it's been a little bit of a rough launch for them. I mean, there is still this big gulf in uh, the quality of gameplay and the quality of the technology and um, specific, well, not so much the quality of the technology, but more the quality of its, of its delivery. Right. And, um, you know, there's still issues like you can't go above 60 frames per second on PC without, I think there are mods now that are appearing. Take you offline though, you know, that's like another thing, like part of the gameplay experience is, you know, uh, being invaded, doing jolly cooperation and, uh, you know, seeing, seeing blood pools to know what's happened and uh, messages. And you don't get those if you start modding on PC. So that's why I'm always a little bit against people thinking that um, modding is the be all and end all of PC gaming, where if it actually actively takes you, if it takes you, if you can't access the complete game due to modding, then it's not actually um, a solution, in my opinion. It's just like a side option uh, in that case. And um, I really do hope From keeps working on this. It seems like they are going to be, because I think this game is so stupidly successful that the publisher needs to have a good a uh, good review at the end. They need to have those highly positive reviews on Steam and things like that. So I think that's going to happen. Uh, I'm just not curious what they're going to do console side because this this is cool that they you're getting better performance there on Xbox Series consoles. Um, but like the obvious optimization here is to reduce the resolution ceiling or floor, I should say floor. Yeah, um, an, an aggressive DRS mode, basically. Yeah. And it's not there, even though it's like so patently obvious. Um, I don't know why. <laughs> I'd at least, I mean, why not implement their checkerboard rendering technique that's being used on the Pro, which looks fine enough, I think. And I'd certainly go for that with more stable performance. You know, um, there were stories this week of just, I think they've sold 12 million copies of this already, which is absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, the success is well-deserved because the game is brilliant. Uh, but at the same time, what does this mean for the fortunes of the game technically going forward? Does it mean, first of all, well, okay, we've we've got to address the criticisms that are being leveled at the game. Um, or does it mean, hey, we've sold 12 million copies of this and we didn't really need to deliver uh, the full technical package and it still did 12 million copies? That's the that's the question, right? That's That's kind of my concern here. And um, I don't know, you know, th there's things here which just seem like simple fixes, right? That that should be in there. Isn't it the case that ultra-wide works, but they add in borders on top? That's what people say, yeah. I mean, I couldn't re rep reproduce that behavior from my video. Uh, like, I tried to do it. Like, people are saying if you, like, load in bonfires or, sorry, Sites of Grace or whatever it's called, um, that you can see the bars pop up at times. Uh, but I couldn't get that to happen. Uh, but people have showed evidence of it. So I think that is actually what is happening, which is so 
bizarre. I don't know why anyone would do that, because you'd have to actively program that to happen. I have no idea. And then there is the fact, uh, I believe, I mean, you can confirm this, Alex, that um, obviously we want a PC game to scale beyond 60 FPS, but has any official FOM software PC release ever gone above 60? No. I don't think so. <laughs> All I have to say so, is, you don't have the right. Oh, you don't have the right. <laughs> you don't have the right. Oh, you don't have the right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, these are legitimate concerns, right? Where even where we've got a developer that's got sustained success over the years, key features that you'd want from a PC game. And uh, key, you know, again, the other thing, which we, which the, the elephant in the room on the base consoles has always been the uh, inconsistent frame pacing. And on GitHub, I, this is something we've got to look into because on GitHub, the, I mean, the PlayStation 4 has been exploited, games have been hacked. There's like a, a, a fix for bad frame pacing in from software games, and we, you know, to the, which is to the point where if this is actually true, if if um, hackers are going in and, and are able to fix uh, this issue, this is this is severely problematic. I've got to take a look at that. I mean, I don't have a exploited PS4, but I'm sure we can dig one out of storage. But this is kind of wacky, right? It points at some communication issues, I think, with the audience's desires beyond the gameplay ones. Because I think there's always been a background thread of people loving from software games, myself included, uh, just also saying we love your game, but but they kind of just never hear the but like the part after the comma with the butt, I don't know. Uh, like, uh, <laughs> it's it's pretty weird. And I always thought that the publisher would make a, would somehow force the hand of From Software here, but it doesn't really happen in the past. Interesting stuff. Well, I think we're going to leave Elden Ring there for, for a while, hopefully a long while, <laughs> because it is becoming a bit of an Elden Ring channel uh, at the moment for Digital Foundry, and we've got other things to focus on. Uh, and specifically, this next new topic yeah, this one, uh, I guess there were hints of it. There were leaks on Twitter. There was actually uh, a teaser for a GDC talk from AMD, but Fidelity FX Super Resolution 2.0 has now been announced. Deathloop has been shown using a new upscaling technology, which uh, is, um, I don't really think, I don't know. Can you call it FSR 2.0? It seems to be a completely different algorithm. Um, but yeah, it certainly looks extremely promising. Alex, uh, first impressions. I mean, you've seen some comparison shots. Uh, we've seen a YouTube video. I'm not sure how effective that is because it's YouTube. But yeah, yeah, tell us more. What are your thoughts? I mean, because uh, here's the thing, right? We as, as, a, as an entity and you specifically have got heat for... Um, uh, for, for basically saying, hey, FSR 1.0, interesting, but it's not good enough. Yeah. Uh, so this, I said it on Twitter, I'll say it here again, that this answers the what I wanted from AMD the entire time. Before FSR was uh, detailed in any way, they had just an idea of what it was, leaks about it. Uh, and then it came out that it was just a spatial upscaling solution. And I just rolled my eyes and was like, this is not at all what I want. Uh, because we've seen that before in the past, we know its limitations. And uh, then there was all the kerfuffle, hullabaloo, whatever, about when it when it came out uh, about our, our coverage on it and just uh, me having a very hard stance line of this is not good enough for what we could have. And I always pointed in this coverage to the fact that uh, there's other uh, agnostic solutions, TAAU, uh, Temporal 
anti-aliasing upsampling, which has been in existence, I think, since about 2015 or so. It's whenever, just around the time like For Honor and the Division came out. So maybe that's like 2016. I can't remember the exact year. Um, yeah, right. Similar concept. Uh, you know, using t temporal data over time to increase the apparent resolution. And this is tried, tested, and it keeps getting improved upon all the time. It's what DLSS 2.0 builds upon. And they didn't come out with that, so I was a little disappointed. But uh, FSR 2.0, you look at all the documentation uh, and everything they've put out so far, it is essentially, based on what they've said, a version of temporal anti-aliasing upsampling. It's reconstruction technology. It is, as John said, or uh, I think it was you, Rich, does it actually deserve the name FSR at all? <laughs> because it is a completely different technology. And, and even in their uh, their... Their little press uh, guide there, they call it built from the ground up. So it's apparently not using FSR. Um, and uh, so it is very different. Uh, and I think this is just exactly what we need. Um, I don't know the specifics of how it looks in motion, unfortunately, because uh, YouTube is pretty bad at doing that. And I think the style of video or the style of comparisons that AMD does um, they did it for FSR 1.0, where they split the, the screen into half or into thirds with one side on the other side and the other side. And it's like the full image, but you're not actually seeing like for like. You're seeing just the other half of an image. It doesn't actually communicate the difference to you. Um, so I think they could have done that better, but we're going to have our hands on this hopefully soon enough based upon what we've seen already here in uh, Deathloop, which uh, praise to those arcane guys that they put in FSR 1.0, DLSS, and now FSR uh, 2.0, and who even knows, they may even do XCSS at the end because they're they're cool like that. Um, but uh, praise be to them, they're, they're really good, and their DLSS implementation was good, and I hope that they find the time and effort to make the FSR 2.0 implementation just as robust. It's interesting you say time and effort, because I would imagine, though, that now that they're leaning on motion vectors that it actually does require more effort to implement for the developers probably not like too much but you know it's not like it just a toggle switch that you can turn on for all these games right it's something that needs it's going to need to be implemented by the developers like dlss basically but the difference here is that it should theoretically work on anything of a certain you know capability they uh said in their press release and uh, computer base also confirmed this by asking that it does not require any special gpu instructions which implies i think that it is not using any machine learning at all i think it's just like a really nicely written algorithm essentially it's not actually doing anything that uh, like like intel's doing or nvidia's doing i don't know what that means for quality uh We'll have to see when it comes out. I mean, theoretically, it's competing with like Unreal's TAAU and all that, right? Like this is what they're trying to do. And have they confirmed whether this is something that could be available on consoles as well? I think if it's, it's just well, GPU, it's, it's GPU open. open, so yeah, so it should be. I think it's, so. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, but this is the big question, right? Is uh, how is how is it going to compare to uh, some of the console TAA upscalers? Which, you know, if we look at like what Insomniac are doing. Uh, there's some, I mean, it is really good. Interesting claim actually from AMD that it can, um, it should be able to get, uh, look similar to, I think is the exact words, uh, native resolution and in some cases look better. And uh, on the face of it, that's a tall claim, but what it 
kind of is reliant on is how bad the native TAA implementation is in the, any given content. And the thing which is quite interesting, I think, about death, death loop in, in particular is that, um, I mean, DLSS doesn't just look better than native on death loop. It looks a lot better, uh, which kind of suggests to me that maybe the native TAA solution is a bit lacking. Um, I think from my perspective, there's something which I find quite interesting about all of this, which is the concept of branding, right? Um, and its uh, impact on getting integration into games. So, you know, if we look at FSR 1.0, I'm sure there's a lot of developers who looked at it and thought, well, hold on a minute, I'm already doing a resolution scaler in my game. I'm already doing TAA upscaler in my game. Uh, wh why should I put this in? And, um, you know, a good example, I guess, of this would be maybe Call of Duty Vanguard, where they had their own, you know, they've, they've got their own TAA upscaler, which has uh, historically been pretty good. But, you know, it got FSR 1.0 support as well, uh, simply because I think AMD GPU users kind of expected it and uh, possibly even demanded it. So it, it, it kind of led to an integration um, and if this means that um, uh, the similar pressure is to get in an FSR 2.0 implementation as well, just to get more games supporting a decent upscaling solution, I think is, is, a, is a pretty good thing. And that's partly down to the power of branding, um, potentially, uh, uh, you know, as much as the quality of the technology. But if the quality is there this time, then I think that's going to be tremendous. But yes, I think you're right in that it's going to, well, they've said it's going to require per game integration. Um, and it is going to be using very similar inputs to DLSS, I'd imagine, which is to say that, you know, if, if a game has DLSS, it kind of should have this as well. And I do think that's a good thing because there are a lot of non-RTX GPUs out there. But it is all going to come down to the quality of the implementation. And uh, there's a GDC talk coming soon where uh, hopefully they'll go into a lot more depth about it. Um, because, I mean, I, uh, there was a press briefing on this and um, they just refused to answer any questions, any meaningful questions about it. And, and perhaps rightfully so, bearing in mind they'd be potentially spoiling their own GDC presentation if they did so. Yeah. Um... Uh, just one thing to talk about that I want to mention is that you mentioned, uh, is this like, how does this look next to other industry uh, use cases, like next to what Insomniac's doing? And I think that's academically interesting, but for the PC platform, it doesn't matter. Like, it just doesn't matter. It just means we finally need games, no matter what, to have good uh, reconstruction technology in them. Uh, and yes, that is... Uh, vendor agnostic. I've always said DLSS should just go open and just see if it runs poor on a GPU, then that's the way it is. But it should at least be open. Um, uh, so I really applaud AMD for doing that. That's what I really want here. And that's what I hope Intel's also at, after as well here. There's an interesting tweet from Ryan Smith of Anantech. He's a bit surprised that AMD isn't going to be using a neural net at all as part of FSR 2.0. Um, and then he says, though, after chatting with a few people, a good point was made. A well-trained neural network is so valuable that it would be hard to justify giving away as open source. <laughs> oh. Yeah. 
It's uh, <laughs> Intel is also kind of going that route too. Like they're not completely open source with the first uh, uh, implementations of XESS, but it's going to open source over time, apparently, right? So, um, but yeah, obviously we're going to be looking at that in a lot more depth, and uh, it will be interesting to see uh, how it stacks up against DLSS because I mean that's kind of the elephant in the room from that uh, death loop video, which is that there were no DLSS comparisons, but historically. AMD just hasn't done it for any of its upscaling um, comparison assets that it's put out. But I guess, you know, proof of the pudding and whatnot, we shall see what we shall see. Um, we're talking quickly about AMD launching a raft of new CPUs. Um, essentially, if we look back at Ryzen 5000, I mean, that was a phenomenal CPU launch. Both Alex and I are on 5950X. Um, very happy with that. But there was a kind of um, issue with the fact that more affordable CPUs were not available, kind of bottomed out at the 5600X, which wasn't a cheap CPU. Uh, we've got some movement here now, and um, we've got a 5500, we've got a 4500, um, which looks uh, kind of interesting. Six cores, 12 threads, $129. And um, that's really good. I mean, it's really good to see that we're actually now getting Ryzen 5000 permeating down into the into the sort of cheaper echelons. Because if we look back, Ryzen 3000, the 3600, was a massive, massive success. And it was never really followed up until now. And um, in a com accompanying that is essentially the notion that older Ryzen chipset boards, like the 300 series, I mean, I believe those were like available with Ryzen 1000. They're going to be getting Ryzen 5000 support. So what I've, I'll go to you on this, Alex, because this is quite interesting in that um, obviously a fire was put under Intel with the release of Ryzen, but Alder Lake has come along. It's really good. It's got some fantastic lower end CPU offerings. Um, Will's putting some reviews together on those. Um, but this has actually caused quite a seismic shift from AMD to compete with that. Uh, it kind of felt like with Ryzen 5000 that they trounced Intel on a majority of the um, PC benchmarking points that were relevant to people, price, price performance points specifically. Uh, and then with Ryzen 5000, they knew they had this advantage so the prices could, could inflate at that moment in time. Uh, and now with Elder Lake out, like you're saying, I think the fire's been put under their feet. And I think also the fire from reviewers as well too, about the promise of having upgradability throughout the Ryzen series or the Zen series of processors, which is why these um, older boards are now going to be getting support for these Ryzen 5000 things. Um, I think this is all great news because I also did lament the fact that I got a number of messages uh, shortly after Ryzen 5000 came out from people in the uh, with like Ryzen uh, 3600s and things like that asking if they should upgrade and or if it would be better to get a 5600X or a 3800 XT or something like that. You know, like these questions of like more more cores older, less cores newer. And it was a hard question to answer at that point in time. I did actually ended up recommending most people get the most recent Ryzen <laughs> uh, because I just thought that uh, single threaded performance increase was so nice. Um, but you know, this, this makes it easier, the decision easier for a lot of people. Uh, the only thing that I'm slightly lamenting at this point in time is that if you're going to be upgrading an older chipset, you're going to be like 
PCIe 3.0. Uh, you're going to have like limited lanes and things like that. You're, I always feel like dropping in a new CPU into an older chipset has limitations for longevity that might annoy you in about two years afterwards. Like you'd be like, oh man, I wish I just bought a different board. But um, you can get a new board at that point. Yes, yeah, at that point, well, hopefully get a new board. At that board, point, yeah. you might be looking at a new platform as well. Right, so like, it's like this piecemeal upgrading system is always something I've been annoyed with on PC in general. I think the thing that surprises me about the 300 uh, chipsets getting um, availability with Ryzen 5000 is that it's always been mooted as not possible before. Um, but it is it is possible when Intel comes along with a really strong <laughs> budget lineup. <laughs> funny. Well, and Rich, it could be said that Intel wouldn't have come up with a really strong budget lineup if not for AMD's competition. So absolutely, yeah. Still and this is four core era. That's we'd all have four core processors so, with HD. But this is the thing, right? <laughs> this is the whole concept of competition, yeah. uh, but also um, the sort of marketing lines that we've been fed over the years. It sort of seemed to uh, sort of morph into something quite different when the needs arise. But yeah, overall, I mean, uh, basically the more availability of faster CPUs at the lower end, specifically Ryzen 5000. I mean, um, if you look at the, the 3600, which we still use in our budget uh, or our mainstream rig, and we should use it because so many of them were sold. Uh, the fact is that, you know, Ryzen 1000, 2000, 3000, they had issues in gaming, and um, which were comprehensively addressed with 5000. So the idea that you can actually get that newer technology now in the in the mainstream pricing brackets comfortably is, is really good. And I think there's some interesting moves here. I mean, um, there's also at the more expensive end, a Ryzen 7 5700X, which is eight cores, 16 threads, uh, 299. Now on the face of it, the Intel uh, i7 is... Um, not that much more expensive and delivers better performance, but you'd have to upgrade your, you know, your entire system essentially, or at least your board in order to access that. So I, I'm quite uh, sort of taken with this idea that you know you can keep your existing board if you're on a 3600 or whatever, and get a really really big leaping gaming performance. So yeah, happy days I think. Um, any final points to add to that? No, I didn't think so, because we've got a big hot topic coming. Uh -oh. And uh, I can see John's winding himself up, ready for this one. <laughs> My nemesis. <laughs> so let's get on with it. <laughs> okay, so let's talk grand, or rather gran, Turismo <laughs> <Grand laughs> 7. It's not, not a particularly grand situation, this. Um, as we uh, record this, the Gran Turismo 7 servers are down uh, for, for extended maintenance. And uh, what is a predominantly a single-player game is, is a currently unplayable. Um, so in your content, John, you lamented the always-online nature of uh, Gran Turismo 7. And uh, you were projecting a time in the far future where this game simply wouldn't be accessible. And, uh, you know, what, a couple of weeks on for, <laughs> for launch, it's temporarily unaccessible now, which is kind of not acceptable, right? This is an interesting moment because seeing the reactions, I hope that people actually stop and think about what it means. Like, I, I complain about online DRM in games a lot. 
and it's a, I think it's a big problem. There's a lot of games out there already with this. We talked about Diablo 2 recently. There's a ton of stuff on PC, like tons of Activision games that you can't play offline at all. Uh, things like this, you know, you can't. It's just, it's a real issue for long-term accessibility and and the ability to even play the games at all, right? So, in the case of GT7 and GT Sport before it, for whatever reason. I think it's for, they say it's something to do with the with trying to prevent cheating, which uh, you know I'd say keep the multiplayer separate then please, but uh, it's a it's a case where if you're not connected to their server the game is basically unplayable, and now people are seeing what it means when that happens, and it really is exactly what I've been saying it's it's not accessible. I don't believe for a second that all of these servers will always be online. And I know people argue that it's not important because, you know, you're playing other stuff in the future. Who cares about that? But, you know, I've just spent the week playing tons and tons of old racing games from uh, the late 90s and early 2000s. And every single one of them is completely playable and still good, actually, a lot of them. Um, That may not be possible with GT7 or GT Sport. And other games with online DRM, uh, whether it's the the publisher taking it offline, world events happening that decides that okay, well now this region can no longer access these servers or ever play the game, uh, things like that. Like you can lose access, uh, or the PlayStation Network hack back uh, when was that? That was twenty eleven. Eleven was it eleven? Rich maybe. I I don't remember but for sure. Okay. Was, okay. Um, but it it was there was a big downtime at at that point wasn't there yeah Yeah. and i understand for fully online games why you would need this right you're not going to play um an mmo offline necessarily although like in final fantasy 14's case i kind of wish you could uh but i i get that but it's just a shame to see games like this like diablo 2 and console i mean this even goes back to stuff like you remember assassin's creed 2 on the pc when it launched it had this problem where if you disconnected from the internet, it booted you out of the game. Uh, People say, oh, PC gamers are just used to that, but nobody wants that, especially when these things eventually go down. At least on the PC, you can usually crack the games to get around it, but it's a lot more difficult on the consoles to do it. So I don't know. I, I just want, I think it's important to highlight this stuff when it happens so people understand the consequences of this stuff going down, because even if their argument is always like, well, I have internet, but it doesn't matter if the server is not online, right? And uh, I think this game is good enough that it's absolutely worth preserving. And it should, it's something you'll still potentially want to play in 20 odd years. Uh, I i just played a ton of Gran Turismo 3. It's still good, <laughs> really good, in fact. Um, and it w- would have been a shame if that game was now relegated to some pile of obscurity due to the inability to play it. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about the cost of games. This is a really expensive game to buy. The concept that you buy it and you get home and you can't play it because the, the on your own because the servers are down. It's not really acceptable, right? I mean, as you say, if it was a game like, uh, I don't know, built around multiplayer, MMOs, possibly Destiny 2, that kind of thing. You know what, Rich? Even in De- Destiny's case, I'll be honest, uh, it is a multiplayer game. But you don't have to play it that way. And I actually think it plays really well in single player. And I'm not happy that 
essentially you can't access it without their servers. They've been actually taking content away. You purchase content, it can be gone forever. You cannot access it anymore. Like that stuff sucks. Like it's not good. And the game is good enough that you could actually enjoy this offline. Absolutely. Maybe not every aspect of it, but a lot of it, you absolutely could. Grand Turismo 7, there's also been complaints about the grind being significantly ramped up for this one. No, well, that's not true until necessarily now. I have to check. But before the patch, there wasn't actually that much of a grind. It was actually less grindy than GT3. Uh, you got a lot more stuff in a less amount of time. And in fact, some people were complaining it was too easy to basically get a platinum and like get through all the stuff. Um, but it's not good that there's... This, the microtransaction stuff is a whole different thing. I, I hate that stuff. I would never use it. Uh, you know, it didn't initially impact that, but it sounds like this patch, and I haven't tested because the servers have been down, they have potentially made it worse so that now it takes longer, and I think that's a bad idea. So I, I really don't know what they're doing over there right now. It's just, it's madness. Stop it. <laughs> okay, that's enough Gran Turismo 7. And indeed, Grand Turismo 7. Grand. Um, and uh, <laughs> let's move on to the next topic. Quick discussion on this one. Uh, it looks like a direct storage is actually moving closer to being a real thing on PC. This is uh, essentially the, uh, the software stack that will allow the PC platform to more uh, efficiently tap into the strengths of the SSD. Um, Alex, do you want to talk about this one quickly? Sure, it's it does. It's going to be quick though because there's not much to talk about. It seems like it's a big thing. Direct storage is released. Oh my goodness! But it's actually like I would say one half of what direct storage is. So the the part that released right now is the uh, ability in Windows 10 and Windows 11 to use direct storage API to have access to a different method of loading that is more suited towards SSDs. So you can have parallel loading instead of just serial loading. Uh, there's none of like the, the Windows crap getting in the way. Uh, you know, stuff that was designed primarily, you know, 25, 30 years ago around platter drives. Uh, so that is what that is, but it is not, it does not have the bit in it right now, the GPU decompression bit, or even I think the necessarily the way stuff is moved uh, between uh, uh, VRAM, system RAM, in, uh, uh, and uh, the hard drive or the SSD in this place. I don't think that's actually necessarily in place right here. Uh, so it is right now the bit that developers can start and use to start programming their games with. But it doesn't really, I don't think this will actually have a big impact in its current form at all um, on the performance of games. Because one, developers have been kind of doing this stuff, this like loading stack differences. Like I talked about Star Citizen ages ago about how it loads differently. They're kind of avoiding these issues by doing a different style of loading through the old Windows API for loading. Um, so like, I don't think this is going to have a big impact. It's really when they re unleash the RTX IO and whatever AMD is going to call their thing and whatever Intel is going to call their thing that allows for on the GPU decompression of stuff from the SSD into VRAM. That's when we're going to start seeing the, the major differences in game development in total that we see on consoles already with things like Ratchet and Clank. So um, it's interesting, but it's pretty academic right now. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's that. Cool. And we're going to round off um, the news section of this with an interesting post I saw on gamesindustry.biz, um, which was essentially 
giving us a, a breakdown of the um, ratios between physical and digital purchases in the UK. Actually got some um, really good data there to look at. And uh, this one, I kind of put it in as a sort of speculative topic because, you know, I didn't know whether we should do it or not. But there's actually some really interesting data in here which caught your eye, right, John? Yeah, I mean, currently it does seem like things are pretty even in terms of digital and physical split, which I kind of take as good news as someone that prefers physical media still, and that a lot of buyers also seem to prefer that. Uh, and even in the case, you know, where games, they prefer digital, it tends to be more focused on titles that are predominantly online focused. So it would make sense. But the point is here is that uh, it looks like both sides of the business are actually quite healthy. So one has not necessarily replaced the other. Looking at some figures here, FIFA has got uh, basically a 61% digital share, which kind of makes sense. Uh, but that does still mean that, you know, 39% of those are physical discs. Call of Duty, similar, 58% is digital. But then again, you look at something like uh, Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart, and, it, and the recorded sales uh, for digital there is just 18.4%. Spider-Man is so, 30%. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Far Cry 6 even, it's only 44% uh, digital. Mm -hmm. So it is painting the picture that if a game is has got a strong single-player focus, then typically it seems to sell more as a physical disc. I'm a little baffled by uh, Battlefield 2042 only being 58% digital, though, because, like... Uh, yeah, that one's weird. I mean, Rainbow Six Siege is 96% digital, which makes sense. But... Well, this is the other thing, right? <laughs> Old games... Uh, which tend to be heavily discounted online, do see a big, big proportion. So, you know, GTA V, 77% of that is effectively digital. But probably not in um, terms of overall sales, right? So, so. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's, it was just for 2021. So, yeah, it's, it's a legacy title, effectively. There's no data for Switch, um, which sort of uh, isn't particularly useful because it's we're seeing a lot of zero percent digital zero on that list when it isn't actually i don't know 0%. why you'd buy digital on on a nintendo system at this point you know oh my gosh because, yeah they've uh, proven that they'll just toss that ownership away issues five there. Years. Just, yeah. just get the just get the disc man or the cart yeah <laughs> guardians of the galaxy uh 27.4 percent digital so again single player game uh very strong physical presence there so physical isn't going away john you can you can rest easy. As long as we don't <laughs> have think, more of this know, DRM nonsense, it's it's good. Most games don't have that, though, so thankfully. Thankfully. <laughs> yeah, but it's uh, just an interesting set of data there. Just generally follow uh, Christopher Dring of gamesindustry.biz on Twitter because there's a ton of really interesting data there uh, that gives a lot of um, insight into you know, what consoles are selling, uh, what the split is between digital, physical, splits between uh, last gen and cross gen which we'll talk about shortly in the uh, supporter q a plenty of fascinating data to go through there rich there's breaking news power slave on xbox got 120 hertz support so if you're on series x or you're on series s it's 120 frames per second now no better time to play it it was already 120 on the pc but awesome update thank you night dive uh there you go <laughs> that's your public service announcement because it was just uh, back compat it is still back compat on all platforms they've just done the backwards compatibility plus thing you know gen 9 aware so it does take advantage of that which means it's also you know 120 on series s that's a nice thing so 
there it is. Go check it out. Let's move on to some content discussion. I'm quickly going to talk about, I mean, obviously I've been focusing on Steam Deck for a little while now, not as focused as I should have been, um, but ultimately I have to run this company as well. <laughs> but um, um, yes, um, essentially, um, next project I'm going to be doing is a series of uh, things that you shouldn't really be expecting the Steam Deck to be able to do. I've got some footage here that I shared with supporters this week, which is Flight Simulator on Steam Deck, essentially running uh, with the Series S quality presets installed here and um, running at 30 frames per second, and unless there's fast camera movement or trees. <laughs> which, um, but yes, I mean, I was kind of blown away by this. I did see some footage online of somebody playing it on low and it seemed to look, you know, okay. But... Um, Again, we're going to, uh, once we get a deck over to a uh, Alex, it's going to be all about optimized portable settings and uh, what we can do with that. But I've just been, you know, choosing uh, quality settings where the developers have made trades for consoles and then basically reducing the resolution and we're getting some fantastic results there. But there's so much more to test. Um, there's things you can do on Windows, which I don't recommend for Steam Deck, but does open the door to t more tests. Um, ray tracing is indeed supported on a handheld. Uh, you can play Metro Exodus Enhanced Edition on it. You can play Quake 2 RTX. So I'm going to be talking a lot more about that. Oh, yeah. And, Quake 2 uh, RTX yeah. on, on the deck. <laughs> on a handheld. That's wild. It, yeah, uh, it's happening. It's true. Yeah, I love that. It's, it should be doable. If you think about it, it just needs the support, and it apparently has it, so it's cool. Good stuff. And uh, John, you're reaching the, the conclusion of your Gran Turismo project, which has kind of evolved over time into something yeah. sprawling and galactically large, right? Exactly. So uh, just an update for everyone. It's, all, <laughs> grand. it's almost yes, finished. Gran Turismo project. <laughs> um, the overall, so it's going to roll out for patrons, I think, this weekend. Uh, and then, you know, public sometime after that. For the public release, I'm probably going to split it up into two parts, like we did with the PlayStation video. Well, that was three, but because it's probably going to be over two hours long, and it's very split between there's the PlayStation 1 era, you know, pre-2000, and then there's the PlayStation 2 era. And it ended up being that I, I'm looking at Gran Turismo 1 through 4, uh, as well as everything happening around these games at the time and the realistic racing genre. So there's lots of comparisons and discussions and quick, um, you know, little bits on upwards of 20 different racing games on here. There's so many games in here now across all these different platforms. Uh, and I'm just putting the final touches on uh, the showdown between four of these games when they all introduced the Nürburgring for the first time. So we get to see how the Nürburgring stacks up across these titles. Um, plus, you know, it's just, it's a fun, it's a fun piece. And I, I really hope it shows like what made those first four Gran Turismo games so interesting and special. And also looking at GT4 and how much stuff is in there, it made me understand better why GT5 was such a developmental mess. Uh, because they set the bar just way too high. And then trying to do that again at that higher fidelity in that amount of time like it just it's an impossible task that they set themselves up for um but yeah what what a cool thing i hope people enjoy it it's it's i want to take people on a journey from the beginning of of sort of like sim racing all the way through you know essentially the mid 
2000 period. So about 2005, 2006 era is where we're going to stop. And right now I'm, I'm just working on the GT four part. And then there's a couple more comparisons in there and then we should be rounding it out. So look for that soon. And I think uh, what struck me is that by covering the PlayStation one to PlayStation two era, what we're also seeing is arguably, uh, I'm not sure there is much argument really, uh, the biggest generational leap we likely ever saw between console generations. And I have comparisons with PS1 to PS2, and you can really appreciate the the leap. And even the leap from the Dreamcast era, like just GT3 was doing a lot of really insane things for, for its era. Uh, stuff that, like the car reflections, for instance, the way they capture those reflections and then they're actually doing like rough calculations on like a roughness cutoff to ensure that you don't just get this reflection wrapping around looking the same across all body panels. It actually varies based on the type of material used, even though back then you didn't use the term material to describe those things anyways, because it wasn't really, but it's just, you know, artists and, and the tech guys looking at these games like, all right, how do I display this thing? You know? Like even Gran Turismo 4 then adds like a Fresnel simulation to the mix. And none of this stuff is done in ways that have any connection to the way stuff is works now. It's just this like super custom, like let's just fudge the math, make this work to kind of simulate the effect we're going for kind of thing. And I find that so fascinating just to see what these, what these guys are doing and what they were doing back then. Uh, it's, it's a cool era for sure coming to patrons very soon and i guess we'll be rolling it out in due course uh, to uh, youtube publicly in two parts so look forward to that okay so let's move on to supporter q a this is where supporters of the df supporter program uh, send their questions to us every week we choose a selection of the ones where we feel we could provide interesting and or amusing responses and um, we're going to kick off with uh, one from joe esposito in the last direct the frustration with cross-gen game development was hard to miss. It's understandable why the DF team wants to see the new hardware operating at full power. But with the reality of console supply shortages, isn't cross-gen the more responsible course? There are many people who want the new consoles but can't reasonably get one. Uh, is it better to leave this segment of the audience behind in pursuit of maximum performance? If you were a game developer, would you want more people enjoying your work in a lesser state, or would you prefer having fewer people playing a better version? John? When we first started talking about the next generation, I don't think any of us had really considered the implications of the chip shortage on these machines. Uh, I certainly didn't think that by 2022, you still wouldn't be able to walk into a store and buy these machines, right? But that's what's happened. Um... So selfishly, yes, I would obviously prefer them to be next-gen focused, but with the cost of investment these days and the fact that people just can't seem to get these machines still, a lot of people can't, I understand why it's it's become this way, and logically it probably does make sense. Um, you know, it's... I guess it depends on, the, on what the game is trying to do, uh, both visually and conceptually. Because I think there's still certain things that you might try to achieve on a machine on a faster with this on a machine with a better CPU and much faster storage and memory. Uh, there's things that you could potentially do there that really wouldn't work well on last generation machines. Um, and you know, 
Ratchet and Clank, for instance, I mean, it's still one of the only examples of a game that was, you know, what it's doing wouldn't work on a base PS4. And I, there, I'm, I actually bookmarked a tweet of somebody that claimed that within the next year, it's going to show up on PS4. And on that anniversary, I'm going to be sure to remind them that it was never announced for PS4. So if you're, if you're watching this, you know who you are. I'm coming for you. (laughs) But uh, I don't think, you know, that kind of stuff is cool, but conceptually not everybody's trying to do that kind of thing necessarily and you know i guess the one benefit of things being cross-gen is that we also still see a lot of 60 fps um where i do i do think once we see some big unreal engine 5 titles that are really using like lumen and nanite that we're gonna see less 60 fps i i just don't think that the machines are capable enough to actually deliver something like that Matrix demo, for instance, at 60, let alone, uh, you know, even higher res at 30 FPS, right? So we, I think we'll eventually see some return to that, though maybe not as many games necessarily, but I don't know. I don't know. I mean, uh, again, we had some interesting data from gamesindustry.biz across all of Europe, um, sales for Horizon Forbidden West, 59% were on PlayStation 5 um, and the rest on PlayStation 4. So that's still a sizable proportion of people playing that game on, on the older platforms. Uh, so, yeah, I guess from a business perspective and also from you know people having the ability to access Horizon Forbidden West, it kind of works out, right? Um, I also think in terms of the sort of broader... Um, uh, sort of uh, market looking at multi-platform development the ability not to get new hardware has been uh, keenly felt on the pc uh, side as well yes true yeah mm. so the, I, I guess what we're looking at here is just more scalability true um uh, just generally i think most and, things uh, can be scaled right there's there's some concepts that probably could not be, yeah. but most things, visually at least, can be scaled. I don't know. I, I, the thing is, when you go back to 2013, you see like Killzone Shadowfall. That was, you know, that was basically a PS4 game that just wouldn't have been possible on PS3 in, in anything like the same way, shape, or form. So to 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 not to have fewer of those exclusive experiences is it, it's not great, but it is what it is at the moment. I think we really are seeing truly diminishing returns at this point. Like all these new techniques are amazing and they definitely enhance it. But, you know, games still look good without these cutting edge features. And that's, you know what I mean? Like you're not going from like, this is subpar to, wow, look at this. Uh, I don't think it's possible necessary, necessarily to see a jump. Like we were just talking about with like Gran Turismo two to three, like that kind of leap is just not something we're going to see anymore. Uh, well, just, one to two. Yeah, just because the <laughs> actually yeah, no one, one to two is the same system. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. PS one to exactly. PS two. Yeah. Um, it's so it's just you know I, I've had to temper expectations and I understand realistically that it's not possible and it's not and these days it's not even about the hardware anymore. Like back then it was like they could just do more because hardware had been so limited. Now. I think the games are more limited by development resources, budgets, you know, manpower, time. That stuff is the is what's really the limitation in many cases. So, uh, new hardware helps ease things for them in some ways, but it's not you know 
that's not the main limiting factor anymore. Next question here from Varley. <laughs> he's, he's coming in strong here. If you didn't have to use them for coverage purposes, would any of you ever touch a PS4, Xbox One system ever again? Or would you toss them in the nearest skip where they belong? Where they we, would, belong. we wouldn't touch them, would we, John? Well... Uh, would you touch an Xbox One? Yes. Oh, you, ooh, well, that's, a, that's a naughty question, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, no, so I've become a bit of, you know, a little bit of a historian on this stuff in terms of I really enjoy like having access to all manner of hardware and technologies across the full range that has ever existed in the gaming space. So, you know, it's not like it's true. It's unlikely that I would actually sit down and spend a lot of time playing Xbox One, given that everything that runs on there runs on newer hardware often better uh but which is different from before it, it didn't used to be that way but i still think it's worth keeping around and looking at uh just i just think it's interesting sometimes to look back at this stuff so even if i wasn't using it for coverage you know i guess the reason i do this stuff anyway is because i always found that stuff fascinating right so i i would probably still keep it around just to just to look at that stuff and have access to that part of history uh, and what I really like to do is try to take those consoles when possible back to their like original state. Like I really want to get an Xbox one with like the, I have the connect, you know, get that with the, the launch day firmware going or, which I don't even know if that's possible, sadly, or an Xbox 360 with the blades, you know, stuff like that. Like, I, th I think there is some value and it's interesting to look at the, look at these things as they were at a different period in time. That's an interesting point because the blades were firmware updated out of existence and you know you can't we can't actually get assets of of the blade system working anymore because there's no access to the to the os uh that's such a shame like on pc i just installed windows 98 and it's like well who cares but you can't really get the blades back they even patched out compatibility for the xbox 360 hd dvd drive right it's gone in future firmware so you can't watch uh, you know the fast and furious uh trilogy on hd dvd right like it sucks you got it you have to go blu-ray and it's just <sighs> i can only think of uh wanting to access uh either of those uh, systems for coverage purposes and i have recently for the steam deck to compare it against playstation 4 um but yeah i as you say that the issue is that there's no exclusive experiences for those or very few limited uh, exclusive experiences for those consoles anymore because our new consoles are backwards compatible and run the games better i will say this though if you're a user of psvr it actually makes sense to keep a ps4 pro or regular ps4 around as like a dedicated like here's all your vr games on this box uh and just use that because you don't really gain anything much on ps5 because all those games ran at high frame rates anyway for the VR headset. So they kind of look the same. So, you know, it's to keep that around and that's your VR box if you, you know, wanted to do that. Let's move on to the next question. This one from Jonas Larson Tagizade. How close are the two horizons, Forbidden West slash Forza, to Nanite UE5 in terms of geometric density slash complexity? Are we still seeing a generational leap with Nanite, Alex? Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> like just in all of those games, I talked about in the Matrix video, but 
And all those games, uh, if you were to walk up to a, a wired fence, it would just be a texture for the most part. But in Nanite, it's just like a full-on 3D model. They don't care. So, yeah, it's pretty different. Still really different. I mean, it is potentially, a you know, it's, it's just a completely different rendering paradigm, really. It is. And it is interesting to think about because... Um, those games, those two Horizon games are very detailed and dense that most stuff at mid to far range is smaller than a single pixel, right? So you probably wouldn't notice it. It's mainly anything close to the camera. If you look up close, uh, you will notice a, a distinct difference. Or also just the LOD switching. Oh, which, actually, that's, um, that's the big one, the LOD that's switch. Probably, that's the yeah. one thing we were talking about yeah, that's yeah, more yeah. That's obvious, the big one. Right? That's the big one. Yeah, so... Uh, that, then I that, what about, I mean, both of these games have got like really heavy on foliage and jungles and stuff. Oh. Man, I can't do that Not yet. yet. So... <laughs> Not yet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're still, I mean, it's still early days. That's the thing. But you can, you um, can combine but... Nanite with that, I guess. But, you know. Yeah. Then... Nanite tr trunk and then, you know. But it's true. You don't whatever. really get the benefit of that much benefit from Nanite if you're doing a foliage heavy game, right? So, yeah. Just, Not just for the terrain mainly. Next question. Uh, this one from Stefan von der Krohn. So the Steam Deck has this very useful 30 FPS option built in. Do you think the console manufacturers could implement such half refresh rate feature into their own SDK? And what about DirectX and Vulkan? Could this solve the uneven frame pacing issues in many games? Just got to expand the, uh, the window here. At least if they use it, I guess. <laughs> oh. um, yeah. Uh, how to address this one? Well, the console manufacturers do have half refresh rate features in their SDKs. Whether the, the console um, developer uses it or not is another thing. Um, but they, they do have them. DirectX and Vulkan. Alex, um, so here's the thing, right? I've just been playing uh, Flight Simulator on Steam Deck using the game's 30 FPS cap. And it is a properly consistent 30 FPS, just like the, the Steam Deck system level feature. So this says to me that possibly there are DirectX and Vulkan calls for half refresh. Is that right? There is. Um, uh, I talked about it with 4A games back in the day. That it, That's why I asked, like, oh, how do you have such a good consistent 30 FPS cap? He's like, oh, it's just an API call. <laughs> so uh, so that was pretty simple. Uh, yeah, that that's what it is on the PC side. The one thing I'm curious though is do you do I always feel like they should have made that available at least on the Xbox side because on Xbox you have a kind of generic control over VSync in a way with um the ability to force VRR in games with tearing, right? And uh, so which is essentially VSync just better. Um, so I always feel like on Xbox they could have done this. I have no idea what it is like on uh, the Sony side. I mean, the SDK side, there is a, a system level call to do 30 FPS because, um, I mean, on GitHub, PS4 hacked, there are there is a, a hack for from software games that apparently fixes the frame pacing issues and it does it by uh, calling the SCE library. Uh, <laughs> which, again, we really do have to check this out to see whether it's true. But it does suggest to me that there are console libraries available that do do it for you. And some games seemingly don't use it or have issues that could possibly conflict with it. But yeah, I mean, it should be possible, right? It should be doable. And we do see examples of it in the PC space. So yeah. Okay, uh, next question. This one from Alcees. Uh, 
I've been picking up CRT TVs and monitors over the last couple of years, and I'm noticing that they all now seem to have a variety of flaws. I know you're all strong proponents of the, of the benefits of CRTs, and I'm with you 100%, but how do you keep them going? It seems like the knowledge of repair of these things has largely faded. It's a real shame. So I'm going to go to Mr. CRT, John Linneman, for this one. You're completely right about this and that the knowledge is fading away, and there's specific people in the community that have kept up with this, but it's, it is not easy. Uh, the thing I will note, though, is that so one of the reasons why the professional monitors have become so popular is because they they all they do require maintenance, of course, usually capacitor replacements and the like. Um, but they all tend to have options for solving the many limitations that can happen with consumer CRTs, right? Like you can dial in the geometry and the convergence and all those things because there are, that is one of the downsides to this technology is that there can be issues with those aspects. Um, and most consumer TVs that you would have bought, you know, for your home, uh, they don't have anything to adjust that stuff. Or if, you know, at best you could potentially get inside the chassis and find some potentiometers to tweak. But even then, that's usually not not an option. Uh, you can also use magnets around the tube to sort of slightly re uh, modify the beam as it hits the phosphor screen. I've done that before. Um but yeah, so th it's absolutely true. So not all CRTs are created equal, just like not all flat panels are created equal. And yeah, you basically need to know people that can repair these things or repair them yourself. Uh, although, of course, always take care when, when dealing with CRTs. I think everybody always, when you mention repairing CRTs, be careful with the high voltage components, of course. Um, and then... Yeah, but, you know, there's that there's that guy in uh, Germany that we visited that we call the CRT wizard. Uh, Audie and I made a pilgrimage to visit him once. It was a four-hour drive, and he lives in this super remote little village. Uh, we pull up to his house, and just, like, it's the weirdest place I've ever been, but it was amazing. And it's just, like, this crazy place where he repairs CRTs, and he's been doing it for so long. That's, like, his thing. Uh, but he's he's old now, and there's not that many people like this left that are still going to be doing these types of things. So we basically either have to learn it ourselves or, uh, yeah, you know, succumb to time. But if you're using retro consoles specifically, rather than a consumer TV set and you don't want to shell out for a professional monitor, you can actually get a PC monitor, usually for very cheap old PC CRTs. Those tended to have much better image quality because they were tuned for desktop usage um, and if you pair that with like an upscaling unit like a line doubler or something you can actually get images that look really good and close to just using a normal 15 kilohertz crt so it's a cheap way to go that typically has less issues so might be worth looking into final question this one from todd weitzel what went wrong with my Microsoft's Windows Experience Index Score as a replacement for system requirements? What would your ideal system requirements box look like? Uh, Alex, uh, I think maybe a lot of the audience will need to know what Microsoft's Windows Experience Index Score actually was before we answer this question. I think this was introduced with Windows Vista, um, and it ranked your CPU, your memory, um, 
as well as your Aero desktop performance and 3D rendering performance. Yeah, the Aero desktop performance one is pretty funny when you think about it. Um, it required like DirectX 9. I think that's what it essentially required. Um, yeah, and it would give you a score out of, I think originally like six or seven, and then they kept when they realized, oh my gosh, we can't have a, a component from 2006 already getting sixes, they increased the score to like some higher number, probably up to like a 10, maybe 11. Um, and well, like Spinal Tap. Yeah, like Spinal Tap. It's just it goes exactly all the way that. up to 11. It's because it's one, one better. The idea was to give you a good sense of what your component's strengths were. But I don't think I ever saw it referenced in any game at all. People just kept still giving out um, the, the, the same. <laughs> if you even look at now a boxed PC game, it'll have almost the exact same minimum requirements language that a boxed game in 1997 had. Um, so it's it didn't change anything. Why? I have no idea. I think this is just Microsoft. They do they kind of half-ass a lot of PC stuff sometimes, uh, like where they come up with a really great idea, but there's no enforcement. And this could have been a, a really nice change to the PC landscape to have a really good sense of what your computer can do and developers could query it and say what you could have for, uh, require for a game. But never came to be and now it's dead. So thanks, Microsoft. But, but what about your ideal system requirements box? Probably pretty similar, but nowadays it would be so much more complex because you would need like you need single-threaded performance, you would need memory performance, you'd need multi-threaded performance, and then probably some very specific 3D things to be tested. Like, like ray tracing would be one thing, like compute performance would be one thing, and then like RAM pressure would be probably another one, VRAM pressure, because we see some, we've seen in the past, like something like the GTX 970 fall on its face after a certain amount of VRAM pressure, right? So yeah, I don't know. It would, it would be much more intense than whatever the Windows uh, Experience Index score was. It would be, but I would like that. I would like that. You know, the PC is kind of online a lot already, so I feel like Steam could have done something to like integrate its like hardware survey stuff. Although that you know, basically, it's like okay, the developer for this game can put some something into the store page so that it can you can say, all right, look at my hardware. What kind of experience am I going to get in this game? And it like spits out some kind of result, you know, something that makes sense. Like, oh, you can run at 30 FPS if you use this at with these quality settings, or you can do this at this. Uh, there's got to be some way to parse the data, but that's effectively probably the best solution I could see is just some way for the user to just click a button and get like a quick little summary of what kind of experience they're going to have with the game. Because I feel like presenting a bunch of boxes with numbers in it is just going to confuse people and it's just going to fail again. That's an interesting idea. What if Steam basically beamed back telemetry from all the people playing any any given game and were able to give an idea of performance? Oh, they um, could. They could. They I think really this really could. Be great. Yeah, we already see that with Star Citizen. I've, I've talked about it before, but they have an amazing telemetry website where you can see what your components will get in terms of frame rate, CPU limited and GPU limited. It's kind of amazing. Um, so if they can do that with just one game that is beaming back data about frame rate per second and system uh, uh, requirements, then they could do it on Steam already, probably even better with the, the pool of users there. So um, Maybe it could be done at the, at the system level by Microsoft and Clippy could return. <laughs> yes, tell you what you're going to get. Just an animated Clippy sort of. Wait, it looking happy or looking sad Did clippy ever <laughs> return as an xbox avatar because i feel like that that should happen if it hasn't already i don't think so 
Come on, that, <laughs> that's the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Clippy and Xbox avatars. <laughs> now that uh, Double Fine is owned by Microsoft, though, it would be great if if they did you know a Psychonauts like experience where one of the worlds was like going inside Microsoft Bob, and like you know the mid '90s sort of Microsoft stuff, and you're like stuck in that experience. I mean, yeah, some sort of visual representation for Microsoft. You know, the uh, the Windows ninety five launch where Bulma and all the others are dancing on the stage. Maybe if your PC isn't up to it, they're not they're not so animated. <laughs> yeah, they're <laughs> slow. <laughs> uh, but on a serious note, uh, honestly, honestly, PC system requirements is a joke at the moment. If you're joking on the dancing, they could also have like the Steve Ballmer like. Uh, pit metrics where it's like <laughs> depending on how capable your pc is the shirt is more visibly soaked with the sweat <laughs> yeah it's soaked versus not when it's all the way so well, you know you, you're how taxing experience. your hardware is is related to the uh, to the sweat factor there. exactly <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. okay look we could go on forever on this but there's some i think there's some genuinely constructive ideas here <laughs> but uh, yes let's wrap it up for now uh, please do like subscribe share if you enjoyed the content ring the bell for notionally instant notifications no guarantees there that is my disclaimer and uh, yes DF supporter program get involved join our amazing community submit questions to the submit. weekly direct get the weekly direct <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> get the weekly direct uh, early um, because that is your privilege uh, but that's all from us for now thanks for watching Ah, GTA 5.